One thing I see missing from a lot of early stage founders' pitches is a narrative about why the problem they're working on is valuable either today or will be over time. One of the things that's often also misunderstood about venture is that very rarely is there a black and white answer. It's a whole series of shades of gray. This is like grayscale on steroids. Our mission is to give the CEO or the founders all the data and the perspective, but then it's up to him or her to make that decision. Hey everyone, I'm Jesse Robbins, and welcome to Venture Confidential, the heavy bit podcast where we have candid conversations with our favorite VCs in the dev tools and infrastructure space. On Venture Confidential, we dive into the fundraising landscape, offer insights on how VCs are thinking about investment, and hear investor perspectives on what great founders get wrong and get right. Venture Confidential is brought to you by HeavyBit, the only fund and accelerator program dedicated to helping developer tools, infrastructure, and enterprise software startups achieve breakout success. If you're interested in learning more about HeavyBit, being a guest on this show, or have a VC-related question, you can email us at vc at heavybit.com. Hi, this is Jesse Robbins, and today I'm joined by Jonathan Heiliger, founding partner at Vertex Ventures. Hey, Jonathan. Hey, Jesse. How you doing? Good. So for those that don't know Jonathan, uh, he's got a very long history, both building, leading, investing in, and seeing big exits in basically every part of the infrastructure and dev tools uh, space. He has been involved in leading some of the largest infrastructure teams and uh, doing some of the fastest scale-outs that anyone has ever seen. And one of the few investors who has just an incredible breadth and depth of technology experience. How's that for framing? Yeah, thanks. I mean, you make me sound way more impressive than I actually am. That's that's a good start. <laughs> well, why don't you give everyone a, a quick summary of your background now that I've lifted you up a little bit? Well, yes, thanks, thanks. Well, briefly, I was fortunate to grow up with parents who were artists, and therefore using computers was uh, me rebelling against my parents. I started my first company when I was 19. It was a business called ISI, and it was also my first foray into venture capital. It was backed by, by Mike Moritz at Sequoia. And you know that company was acquired by Global Center, which was one of the first web hosting companies. Global Center was acquired by Frontier Communications, who was in turn acquired by Global Crossing, all in like a three-year span or something crazy like that. But I fell in love with the internet. I fell in love with being a backstage uh, tech hand, if you will, and kind of making the magic happen behind the curtain rather than in front of the curtain. From there, I actually started a, a corporate venture fund for Global Crossing in 99, which depending on which side of the razor you fell on in 99 was a awful time or an awesome time to be a venture investor. I think people sometimes say that's an interesting time. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's the nice way of putting it. Uh, there was a lot of people who made a lot of money, uh, kind of like today in the COVID times, and there's people that, that unfortunately didn't fare as well. And we, we were fortunate to fare pretty well. We were kind of Series B investors, which you know, in, in today's parlance, it probably looks more like a Series C. So it's the you know, fast-moving, high-growth companies. But I was 23, wasn't ready to have two breakfasts, two lunches, two dinners, uh, you know, to like really network and schmooze and decided I wanted to go back and, and operate some more. I met Ben Horowitz, Mark Andreessen, Insic Ree, and Tim Howes, the four founders of Opsware, became their first hire. I was the services guy, or basically they would say I was the guy gullible enough to carry a beeper for some software folks. And for those of you who don't know what a beeper is, Jesse and I have 
both may actually still have beepers in our in our nightstand drawers. There's little devices that just have a 10-digit alphanumeric display on them, and, and you have to like send little codes using the 10 digits available to you. Right. PagerDuty didn't invent the concept of the beeper or pager. They just uh, they just took the term. Exactly. Exactly. Anyway, uh, sort of fast forwarding there. I, I ran uh, product and engineering for Opsware for three years. Went from zero to six hundred employees, then back down to a hundred, and then even lower. We raised hundreds of millions of dollars. Took the company public, and then almost got delisted. Ben wrote a book about it. That, you know, there, there's that, and you were you were COO of uh, that company, right? I was COO of Opsware. I ran product and engineering, which was about half the company or so, and it was a really unique experience. I've, I've definitely been blessed in my career that while I've been an operations person and an engineering person, I've also been kind of the product rather than the ancillary support function. So, funny enough, my next job was that ancillary support function. I worked at Walmart, and I worked in IT for the, the online store. And my thesis for joining Walmart was I wanted to see what life was like in retail and multi-billion dollar scale. And I learned the term basis points that you know now I use all the time and I sound really smart rather than you know 0.5%, it's 50 bips and you just sound really cool. But at Walmart, IT was just that, it was a cost center. So we put forth different, you know, quote, innovative ideas. Hey, let's not use Teradata, let's use some new data warehouse technology. You know, we'll save literally $100 million a year. And the answer we got back was, oh no, you know, someone, whoever, just signed this big deal with Teradata. You should just use that. It doesn't matter that we could save $100 million or, or get some new insights. All we want you to do is, you know, instead of being 17 bips of revenue, go down to 14 bips of revenue, but do the same things. And you could see how Amazon really dominated the online retail landscape. You know, Amazon was, was a very serious player. They actually, had a platform, this is pre-AWS, that hosted Target and other large retailers on their site. And Walmart considered using them as, as well, but you know, ultimately decided to build their own. Anyway, I, I didn't really enjoy being the, the back-end guy that was treated like the back-end guy. I, I much preferred the being the product. I left Walmart um, and joined Sequoia Capital, was there for a couple of years as a sort of technology advisor. I worked with any number of partners and portfolio companies on engineering and product strategy and hiring and kind of architecture, all, all kinds of different things. It was basically a really long job interview for Sequoia. Jonathan, didn't you end up starting a CDN or something uh, right before the next job you got? Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, absolutely. So I, I was at a sort of funny point in my life. I didn't know what I wanted to do. I'd been hanging out at Sequoia for a couple of years and uh, wasn't sure if I was going to go the venture route or be a sort of renaissance man or, or something else. And I saw this interesting opportunity in, in CDN, and content distribution is a market that has always had a lot of price fluctuations, really based around the cost of bandwidth and transit. And in kind of early 2007, built a pitch deck, as, as everyone does, and was fortunate to raise a little bit of seed capital from Sequoia and Northbridge, who were two venture firms I was hanging out with at the time. I spent several months working with a co-founder, sort of vetting the business idea, and, and my idea was basically to take all this excess unused capacity. So, you know, we, we pay for things on peak rates, right? We pay for 10 gig line, 100 gig line, et cetera, but we have some diurnal traffic pattern there. And my idea was, you know, could you collaboratively shift that load? So you could take, you know, Schwab.com and put it next to Yahoo.com and the two peaks of their, their traffic would be at different times of day and they'd be able to somehow, you know, share compute resources or Bayon resources. 
Anyway, that's a high-level idea. I did get much further than that, but ultimately concluded that there was going to be massive deflation in the CDN business because there's a glut of bandwidth. So instead of continuing, I returned the capital and said, thank you very much. And just like literally the same week, I returned the capital. Matt Kohler and, and Mark Zuckerberg from Facebook called and they said, you know, hey, remember us? You know, we had a conversation a year ago. We'd really like to talk to you again. And, you know, long story short, uh, I convinced them, they convinced me, and I joined the company in the summer of 2007. Man, that, uh, I guess that startup worked out. Yeah, that startup worked out uh, emotionally, financially. It worked out in a lot of ways. I was very, very fortunate to work work for Mark and work at the company for five years, building the infrastructure team, got to hire a lot of great people and, and work with a lot of other terrific people, many of whom are, are still at the company and many of whom have, have left and gone on to do other things in investing, in founding other businesses, you know, themselves or, you know, becoming real estate investors and, you know, hanging out on the beach. Those are all admirable career paths. You got to work with some other notable Marks, uh, Mark Andreessen and then Ben Horowitz at Opsware. What were they like back then before they were the people we know now? Mark and Ben were definitely different characters back then. You know, but I think the who they are as people hasn't fundamentally changed. Mark was really part-time chairman of LoudCloud, which became Opsware. And, you know, it was a combination of his star power to build the team and to attract capital. And that was really his, you know, functional role there for, for most of that time. And arguably to think about strategy and things like that, you know, hey, Mark. And Ben, he was, it was the most interesting perspective for me because he Ben grew up as a product manager at Netscape. And so for him, product was everything and user experience was everything. And this was 1999, mind you. Not many people were talking about those things. And so it was very unusual for Ben as a CEO to really emphasize that and, and, and highlight that. And as a leader, how that translated was Ben was always thinking about customer first and how we could solve customer problems in unique ways, whether that was performance, whether that was cost, whatever that that might be. But as I'd say Ben, I'm still close to today, hasn't changed a whole heck of a lot. As I said, they're both still who they are as people. And I think as an investor, Ben brings a massive dump truck worth of experience and real hand-to-hand combat in the trenches from building a business and rescuing a business from from the jaws of defeat. But, you know, like everyone who has a story to tell in Silicon Valley, the person who tells the story gets to highlight the, you know, the attributes that that they want to highlight. Over the years, I have gone to you for advice constantly, both as an infrastructure peer as well as as a founder and entrepreneur. How have you found that your, you know, actual experience in the in industry uh, and as an investor, helps you and helps the companies that you work with. What unique advantages does it give you? Well, you know, I, I appreciate that, and I would say that you know, I've also come to you both for advice as a as a fellow infrastructure Freemason, and <laughs> as as uh, as you know, also on a lot of hardware projects too. So let, let me start with this, which is you know, I think venture is great for people who are curious, people who like to be a mile wide and an inch deep, at least people coming out of technology roles. But that said, there's some challenges. Like I'm a doer by nature. I, I like to tinker. I like to build things. I, I still play with Lego. You know, my, my, both my wife and I like to design and build homes or offices. It's a passion. And we don't do it for profit. We do it for ourselves. And so I, you know, I, I give you that context because I'm still adapting to what is fundamentally 
being a, a water boy with founders, which is the role of a venture capitalist, and having to to influence, to counsel, to cajole is very different than I want to go north. We're going to go there, and here's the five reasons why. And you know, we're all going to be you know insanely rich and and make a dent in the world by doing this. And like as an entrepreneur, you get to go do that. As a venture investor, I don't think you really do. I think you get to like I said, sort of be a cheerleader on the side, be a water boy on the side to help nurture and to point out flaws and to point out potholes. And I think that our collective experiences, not just my own, but those of my partners, you know, we think investing is kind of engaging in these multi-round, multi-dimensional strategy games with other brilliant people. And, you know, that's sort of true whether or not we decide to be in business together with a founder or not, or a founder decides to be in business with us. There's plenty of founders I've met over the last now seven, eight years who are we're not in business with, but who have become great friends and, and just like you, advisors and mentors and confidants. And you know, it's it is what it is, you know, in terms of the funding dynamic and the partnership dynamic. But I think the friendship and the knowledge transfer outlives that. And how we've decided to practice venture, and again, this is me and my partners, is you know, we're we're direct. We will tell you what we think on day one and day one hundred. We'll tell you why we're excited and you know where there's risks, like where there, again, where there's potholes. And our mission is to give the CEO or the founders all the data and the perspective, but then it's up to him or her to make that decision. You know, you, the founder, are often very focused on building your team, your company, your product. You don't have the same mile-wide, inch-deep perspective that we might have on the industry or that we have from 20 years of bumps and bruises. Now that cuts both ways, right? It's there's a lot of things that I've said no to or said yes to because of my past experiences that I've regretted because I'm like, oh, I saw this pattern a hundred times before. Here's how it's gonna play out. And the hundred and first time I was wrong. Or time changes. What may have worked in two thousand and five doesn't work in two thousand twenty, but you know, something else does. And so where that experience actually hurts is that you have to have almost childlike eyes, a certain naivete. Interesting. Do you find yourself giving founders technical advice, technical suggestions based on your experience, or uh, are you a little more removed from that? Oh no, definitely, definitely removed from that at, at this point in time. You know, I, I would say I am the best editor of Keynote, Google Slides, and PowerPoint. Not. You know, editing Go code in Emacs or I, you know, Eclipse. You know, I can't even think of the name <laughs> of the modern IDEs. That that shows you how far out of it I am. So important question, actually. Uh, Vi or Emacs? Vi all the way. Okay, yeah. I was worried that, that this is actually how I can check to make sure you're not an imposter. <laughs> and for those that are wondering why that answer is so unambiguously correct for infrastructure people, it's because it is unambiguously correct. I'm not even going to try to explain why it might be wrong to choose some other uh, stranger editor. But if you know you're writing code every day, you can you can get your foot pedals and your Emacs key bindings all set up. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, there's those who know, and then there's those who don't know. And if you don't know, you don't. Know. I'm sorry. Yeah. There's not much we can do for you. <laughs> so, uh, tell me about some downsides to having the considerable experience that you have. You know, in terms of your investing and and other pieces. Like, it, where is knowing so much about the industry and the the history of 
trial and error in it, you know, not serve you well. Is this the point in the podcast where I'm supposed to talk about, you know, how I'm right all the time and, and Twitter just makes me look bad? Is that? Hey, man, that would be fine. Like, uh... <laughs> <laughs> no, in, in, all, in all seriousness, you know, I, I do think that that experience cuts both ways. There, I think an important thing when meeting people for the first time or evaluating businesses for the first time is that sort of childlike sense of wonder of imagining what if and what happens when and what will be. You know, the sort of downside of having 20 plus years of experience building a lot of the infrastructure and software is we've seen a lot of generations. We've seen these design patterns come time and time again, right? Yeah. Containers are not new. Virtualization is not, <laughs> is not new. But it is no. a, it's a new implementation. It's a new way of doing things. And, you know, I, I think, honestly, where it's probably most important to remain open-minded as a venture investor is around both the technical approach that's being taken by the founders, who when we generally are backing deeply technical founders who, who have opinions on VI versus Emacs versus Google Slides versus Keynote, but also the messaging that they're taking to the market. And that's, I think, where, just to flip it around again to, to a positive, where I think experience matters more than anything. Because from experience, and this is experience, I wish I had 20 years of experience going to cocktail parties, but I really don't. I have 20 years of experience of sitting in data centers and basements and machine rooms and boardrooms explaining how technology works and fixing technology. And those relationships that you build, that's founding in the, in the sort of real crucible and the pressure cooker of an organization. So you know, to have a texting relationship with CIOs and CTOs and, and their direct reports, because these are all people we worked with, that is, is the sort of special sauce where I think we especially Vertex, the team, can uniquely help a founder figure out, hey, this message works, this doesn't. This feature works, this doesn't. And here's how we can then convince people to, to adopt something that maybe they're unfamiliar with or that they haven't yet thought of before. Interesting. So this is the injecting things into people's brains you know, portion of this show that I'm, I'm hoping for. So we call this Venture Confidential. And one of the things that I spend a lot of my time at Heavybit coaching founders on is sort of do's and don'ts in pitches. And everyone has a list. Um, everyone has their pet peeves, their frustrations, their other stuff. I would love to hear a couple of your pro tips for, for pitching Vertex or pitching Jonathan and Insec on you know, hard infrastructure problems. So let's start with the don't to-dos because those are more fun. So uh, what is a pet peeve? Uh, what is a thing that you absolutely hate that founders do when they're pitching that you would like them to know they shouldn't do? And uh, then we'll get to how to hack Jonathan Heiliger's brain. Got it. Can I actually talk about pet peeves that, that we, Vert, the Vertex team, do with founders who are pitching us? Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> so... Vertex US primarily invests in seed and Series A companies. About half of our time and dollars go into Nouveau infrastructure, and the balance is split up in a couple of markets, but predominantly business SaaS, you know, sort of productivity software tools, things that non-IT buyers would buy. And then we spend some time in other markets like manufacturing with our investment in desktop metal or construction and, and things like that where I where I spend time. So I think you know, this perspective is predominantly oriented towards founders that are building the next generation you know, infrastructure software. And for me, one of the most important things to talk about early on 
is why is the problem valuable, but not just hard? And especially with all of the water rushing towards the cloud providers, and increasingly so, there are a whole lot of very hard infrastructure problems to solve, whether they be storage or compute optimization or monitoring or many other things. Configuration management. Configuration management, absolutely, right? Some of those are not actually valuable problems. They are very hard computer science problems. They are perfect papers to present at you know your favorite IEEE or, or ACM conference, but they don't actually make for a good business because of how enterprise buyers are increasingly buying and they've shifted their dollars from buying from the PC makers, the HP, Dells, IBMs of the world, to now the new names are Amazon, Google, Microsoft. But their buying pattern is largely the same, which is if the suite, and I guess we should probably include VMware and Pivotal in there as well, if the suite of products is good enough, most buyers will be happy with the suite of products rather than a whole bunch of specialist tools. And so one thing I see missing from a lot of early stage founders' pitches is a narrative about why the problem they're working on is valuable either today or will be over time versus a really interesting, hard problem to solve. But by the way, we, the Vertex US team, also get ourselves into trouble here because we like to engage people in product debates and we often spend a lot of time debating the merits of Java 8 versus Java 11, or how to do garbage collection in PHP, or some you know random other shit that is actually distracting from, my goodness, you're four people and you've created this new thing, and this new thing has adoption and usage. Let's understand that. Yeah, so tell me about uh, some, uh, some things that you're seeing in pitches these days that uh, you know, it's just the the pro tip. You know, the uh, the the thing not to pitch uh, the Vertex Ventures team on. Yeah, so you know, I think the thing that we see a lot of founders missing is conveying the value of their solution and why it is ultimately valuable to a customer versus, hey, this is a really interesting hard problem that I've chosen to work on. Interesting, Jonathan. A thing that you and I both share is we love really big, really hard problems, almost so much that you know we'd rather engage on those. When you see founders that are coming to you and they're they're pitching or they're you know trying to get you involved or interested, what are the things that you'd like to see them talking about in addition to you know here is this hard CS problem, here is this hard infrastructure problem. What do you want them to come prepared? to a first meeting with? Yeah, that's a great question, Jesse. I think that one thing we often find that's missing from pitches or conversations, whether that's a pre-seed company, which I would define as a couple of people and you know a slide deck to seed that where they might have some validation to even a Series A company where they've gotten some customers is really conveying the problem statement in a way that is framed from the customer's point of view rather than the founder's point of view of, hey, I've built this thing and here's what it does. And you know, it's it's a dessert topping and a you know a, a cheese grater or whatever it is, right? So are you are you sort of looking these days for founders, even at the early stage, to be able to describe enterprise buying patterns and behaviors? Like is that sort of the new uh, Series A skill? I think for a founder to successfully raise the Series A, having a sense of how they're going to sell their product is critical. Whether or not that's 
top-down enterprise sales, bottom-up selling, right? Build build um, love and momentum through a community, whether that's open source or, or not, is a separate whole business model conversation. But absolutely, they have to have a perspective. I think they have to have a perspective where I think a lot of folks get tripped up is they might come in saying, hey, we have these three opportunities or these four opportunities. And if there's no repeatability across those three, it's a negative signal because it, while it shows in one sense hustle and moxie of you know, founder Sarah went out, got these opportunities, and she's qualified them, and you know, maybe even converted them to be customers. But if they're not repeatable, then I'm wondering, well, when are we going to get there, right? And 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 sort of that that becomes the next challenge, if you will, to overcome. And I think that one of the things that's often also misunderstood about venture is that very rarely is there a black and white answer, right? It's a whole series of shades of gray. This is like grayscale on steroids. Where you, know, you, Jesse, may have one approach, Sarah may have a different approach. They're both totally valid and totally work, but you know you've essentially committed to one. And what we're looking for now in the investment process is a matching. We're looking for do Jesse and Jonathan match from a philosophical standpoint of how to build a company and how to go to market, or do Jonathan and Sarah match? Yep. That's not to say that one is you know worse or better than the other. I think on that point, one of our favorite heavy bit portfolio companies that's also a joint vertex company is Launched Darkly. And you know, one of the things that uh, Edith, who's the founder and CEO of Launched Darkly, you know, impressed us with from the very beginning was a real focus on that kind of repeatability in her customer acquisition cycle, where it was like, yep, not only is she going to be able to go and close using her special founder energy, you know, the first five major customers, but you could see her building a machine that was just quickly capturing more and more and, you know, providing more and more value. Certainly within the the heavy bit portfolio, we we try to help our companies you know, when we're sort of preparing them for a Series A, have a repeatability story and preferably some demonstration. And that's it's an area that we see founders missing a lot of the time because I think the experience that uh, you know we have that have for those of us that have been through the cycle a few times is you know yeah it's not your ability to get one customer you know ah customer you need to have like a pipeline and the ability to show a market that that you can go after. Do you find that, you know, at least in your experience, that's something that, you know, early stage founder CEOs sort of know or figure out early, or you know, or do you spend a lot of time coaching them on on that sort of enterprise early sales motion or large customer early uh, account motion? So I think you're right to point out Launch Darkly and Edith Harbaugh, who's the seat founder and CEO. Edith is, I think, in a league of her own in that. She is a talented salesperson, but also very extremely talented product manager and, and product visionary. Yeah. And it's that combination of skills that make her uniquely good as you know the early salesperson. She can sell the vision. She, she can use that founder magic, like you said. But yet she's also thinking the whole time about how do I build a system to obsolete myself in this process? And whatever that system is, and whoever those people are, they ought to be better than me on day one, and then 10 times better and 100 times better very soon thereafter. She has exceptionally high standards and knows how to get there from a process and machine-driven kind of point of view. And so I think that we spend a lot of time coaching founders, especially technical founders, on the importance of figuring out 
really the customer pain early on. Another company I was involved with as an angel investor called Thousand Eyes was founded by Mohit Ladd and Ricardo Olivier out of their grad work at UCLA. And uh, they were just acquired by Cisco for kind of about a billion dollars, which was a phenomenal kind of journey for them over about 10 years. But one of the things that impressed me the most about Mohit is he hand-to-hand sold the first about a million and a half dollars of revenue at the company and was just steadfastly against hiring a sales executive until he could really show this pattern of repeatability. And you know, I think in, along those lines, I was actually having this conversation with a founder just an hour ago. We're not invested in his company. We're just kind of getting to know each other. And he's like, hey, I've got you know half a dozen POCs. And I think I'm going to hire a sales leader in the next quarter. And my advice to him was, I was like, hang on a minute. Like, go turn those POCs into customers. Don't just stop at six, but get 10 more or 20 more to really understand and, and have a good data set before you bring on a sales leader or even, you know, sure, like hire an account manager, an account executive, so that the CEO doesn't have to do everything from opening the door to closing the sale, right? But, you know, before you hire a sales leader, especially as a technical founder, I think it's tantamount to really understanding the sales process and the, the kind of the customer journey, customer point of view. Yeah. Over a long career as an investor, you know, you said uh, you've gotten a lot better at you know editing Keynote and uh, Google Drive Docs. What are some absolute don'ts that founders should know about you know pitching? Certainly, early stage. Like, uh, what would you like to eradicate from the pitch process if you could? Honestly, I'd say the main thing I'd love to eradicate from the pitch process is the pressure that everybody with venture dollars puts on founders, myself included. Uh, I've had a lot of conversations with peer investors about this, who, you know, especially people who have been founders and become venture VCs. You know, my money is the same color as Martin Casado's money at at A16Z, and he and I talk about this all the time. That you know, the differentiation is really the person, and so you know, I think it's very personal when a founder says no to a venture investor, and it's mostly personal as well when a venture investor says no to a founder, and so. You know, I, I wish there was a way of like let's actually get to know each other uh, before we decide whether or not we want to be in business together for the next decade. Because by the way, the one person the founder cannot fire is their investor. A founder can fire the executives they hire. A founder can fire even the independent board members she hires. The founders can fire the customers. Everything. The one person they cannot fire are their their investors. It's very painful. Very difficult, very messy. But in terms of pitching, you know, I think especially with for first-time founders, people who are pitching for maybe for the first time or raising their their seed or Series A for the first time, you know, a lot of time people get bad advice to do this. We're raising, not raising situation, and or uh, having a conversation with an investor. At least, you know, I'd, I'd like to say someone like myself who's a good person and might be able to help in ways other than just lining the bank accounts of the company is not just around the fundraising moment, but it's about the journey of building a relationship. So the two things I hear from founders often is, hey, we're not raising, we don't need to talk to VCs. All right, hey, maybe I could give you a customer or two. Maybe I can help you think about a problem or two. Uh, Maybe I can help you hire a person or two. Completely outside of fundraising. I'd actually like to do that because it shows that like we can work together versus just 
take my $10 million and run for the hills type thing. Because the other reality of this sort of process, especially in early stages, 99% of companies fail. We spend all of our time ogling the 1% of companies that succeed in a small way or in a big way, and it dominates Twitter, it dominates tech meme, it dominates all the tech press. And I, I think that that leads to a really bad, dark place for a lot of founders and investors. It's an interesting perspective, um, and I, I can say that you know over the years I've actually seen you do that repeatedly, where you have been really an advocate and a resource for companies, whether or not you're getting involved with them more seriously. Um, you're one of the few people that I actually send particularly early stage uh, founders to talk to to you know get ideas and feedback both because I think that you have something to contribute and I, I think you mean it when you want to help them. I'll tell you that at least in my experience it's not universal that it's sort of safe if you're not ready to raise to talk uh, to um, you know series A and series B investors and inside a heavy bit we spend a lot of time you know telling our portfolio founders and our, our CEOs, you know, don't take a meeting and don't don't set up a meeting until you know you're actually ready to raise, predominantly because people are going to form an opinion of you. Where you know, if particularly in a, in larger firms where people don't have experience with you know the difficult early days um, of figuring out product market fit and other stuff, that you know you end up in their CRM. And you know that that CRM follows a funnel, and you know if you're not already a high growth, super exciting company, you actually burned yourself on a cycle, even though the meeting should have been safe. So I guess it's interesting because I think the thing you want, which is you know more of those conversations, it is unique to a very small subset of investors in the infra and dev tools space, in part because the space has gotten so hot. And so, you know, when you and I, you know, started out going back like uh, to when I started Chef, the types of people that were founding uh, companies like ours were rare. And, you know, I think about like both my financing process for Chef for our Series A, which, you know, was in a very difficult time, and Arthur Bergman's, you know, Series A financing for Fastly, which, you know, I mean, it's, it's amazing to, uh, to watch that company continue to just grow and grow. And yet, no one understood what we were doing. And in fact, earlier meetings were bad. So, I guess my reaction to that is, uh, you know, <laughs> it may be true for you, but I wouldn't want people to, you know, believe that that's true uh, generally. Specifically, because you know, mostly people are looking for. Or we, we find, at least I, I find that so many investors are looking for an efficient process and not that kind of long-term relationship building. So uh, you know that seems a little different. That's more commentary than interview, but yeah. no, I, I, I mean I think you, you do make a good point. I'll just react to it briefly, which is that you're right in that I think everyone wants an efficient process, but at the same time, you know I use a lot of dating analogies in these conversations, which may or may not be appropriate. So I apologize <laughs> to the PG thirteen years out there, but you know I'm now married. I didn't go from a first date to marrying my wife, and I think that a lot of founders have that attitude about their venture investors, which is, I'm going to do one meeting with a half dozen, dozen, two dozen, doesn't matter, folks, and then I'm going to pick from whoever shows interest in me and whoever I am interested in, and I'm going to ask them for a term sheet, 
And in you know a week or two, they're going to bring me into a partner meeting. They're going to have done some diligence, and they're going to make me an offer. That it works, sure. Some of the time, I have friends. I'm sure people listening to this have friends as well that have met their you know significant others at, on a blind date or at a bar. You know that totally works, but that's pretty rare. And you know we have a, a phrase that was actually uh, given to me by a, a summer intern that we spent some time with, and her phrase was. She's a, a collegiate tennis athlete. She was like, you need to get reps in. It's all about reps. And I was like, oh, you know, it's just an interesting way of thinking about it, which is, you know, if you're training for something, if you're practicing, it's all about practice, 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 right? You're getting in reps. You're doing, you know, five sets, 10 sets, 20 sets. Now, I'm not saying that founders and investors should have 20 meetings with each other. But for example, our first, the first investment we made during COVID, my partner Insic made, we had you know, one rep with the founders individually, one rep with the founders over a video. The final rep was Insic got together with the founder and they went for a hike. And it was a pivotal hike, both for my partner Insic, who said he got to know the founder you know, on a personal level and, and much more intimately than he would over video. And also for the founder who said, I was about to go with a venture firm with a much bigger brand than yours. But I couldn't meet them, and I couldn't get a sense for who they actually were. And I really wanted to know who was going to be on my board, because that's important to me. And by virtue of getting to go on a hike with Insic for three hours, I really got to know him as a person. So, you know, I, I think that reps matter. And you know, in, in in that sense, like I've done plenty of job interviews and venture interviews on a bike because I'm a cyclist, or you know, on a hike, and it's it's fun. It's different. You don't have to sit in a room and pitch people and have that sort of back and forth that, you know, is very common. Interesting. Uh, you mentioned, uh, you know, COVID. I'm curious how how COVID is affecting your portfolio right now. By and large, COVID has had a very negative impact on enterprise buying. A lot of purchases have been postponed by one to three quarters as the enterprise buyers have their budgets frozen. There's been a few cases in LaunchDarkly, for example, our mutual portfolio company is a, is a beneficiary of this, where budgets were actually pulled forward because people, you know, the enterprise buyers are saying, "I absolutely need LaunchDarkly to improve efficiency, to deploy faster, to you know get features out there." Another portfolio company, Perimeter X, saw some interesting benefits from COVID as they sell to a lot of e-commerce providers and retail shifted from offline to online. You know, we we signed a a, a pretty big deal with a with a major retailer on on the same day that they announced some terrible news, you know, and that it shows the sort of the power of, in their case, security and you know attack mitigation and, and the importance of that on, on retail. But you know, unfortunately, I would say that you know the big takeaways are that purchase process has slowed considerably, and that you know most of our portfolio companies that say the average or the median is basically a plan revision down about twenty percent for the year. Like I said, there's a few companies who are beating plan and and you know exceeding. But if we look at our basket of about 30 portfolio companies, you know they forecasted down for the year. What do you think the next sort of dev tools infrastructure hot topic or hot space is going to be? What what are you excited about? Uh, you know, not not something that like we're seeing right now, but that you think is about to be a big deal. Yeah, I mean, I think it's honestly, Jesse, it's an area where you and I have a lot of shared history and, and time together. 
the area where we have spent the last several months really digging deep, surveying the landscape, surveying companies is SRE tooling. We don't have shared experience. We've got shared trauma. <laughs> exactly. Okay, keep going. <laughs> you know, SRE is this, is this notion that site reliability engineers, you know, I think one of the many misnomers about this function is that site reliability is actually a product feature, just like performance is a product feature. And if it's not a product feature, it's not going to get dealt with. But as a result of it becoming a product feature for, I think, many fast-growing internet companies, enterprises have started paying attention to this as well, especially as enterprises shift more and more online and more and more to the cloud. And so I think you know, it's an area where we see tremendous growth because just like data scientists and data engineers call it 10 years ago as Cloudera and Hadoop were entering the scene and everyone needed a data lake, now all of a sudden it's, oh, how do we actually improve the efficiency and performance and scalability of our applications? We need these SREs. These SREs are really hard to find and hard to hire. Well, if we can't create thousands of them overnight or tens of thousands of them overnight, maybe there's an opportunity for tooling to turn SREs into super SREs. So the the thing that I see coming down the pipe here is super SREs and and what are the tools that, that they need to really be effective, not just where one person can do the job of, of 10 people, but also really scale up the amount of infrastructure and the complexity of infrastructure that they're managing. Wow. So do you think that that's sort of an evolution of the tool chain and knowledge space? Sort of, you know, we've, we've had PagerDuty and now, you know, other companies uh, like VictorOps and, and others that are sort of uh, emerging there. You know, we're starting to see, you know, companies like Gremlin that, you know, has been focused on you know game day and failure injection. Is this sort of uh, the next evolution of sort of SaaS platforms for operating at scale? Is this the arrival of an entirely new role, or is it simply enterprises now adopting and adapting to a job that they all now have to do because uh, the jobs continue to change? Yeah, I think it's it's a good question, and, and those are some great companies you mentioned as well. I think, quite frankly, one of the big risks here is that we have this Cambrian explosion of tools, and we actually make life harder and worse for the engineers that are working on these problems. And to me, as both a practitioner and investor, the holy grail is, you know, I want that super SRE. I want the the, the super architect engineer. I want that as a tool. And I don't know if that's possible because there's so much prediction and nuance in understanding a running system. But you know, just to sort of briefly pause, think about the day in the life of an SRE. It's very similar to a data scientist or a security engineer. They have you know three to six monitors in front of them with graphs and database logins and terminal windows and presentations and all these kinds of things. And they're copy furiously copy and pasting data between the systems to understand what's actually happening inside of their engine, inside of you know, whatever is running their website. And so to me, the holy grail is, is, can we take that and package that up into a tool, into a piece of automation that is predictable and doesn't get irritated when it doesn't get coffee and doesn't need to be you know, fed a steady diet of Macallan in, in the evenings? I don't know that that's possible, but what I do believe is possible is that with tools like Gremlin or launch darkly or service catalogs or you know new ways of monitoring systems with distributed tracing is that all of a sudden that engineer's job 
gets a whole lot easier because they have a lot more visibility and they can actually reduce the surface area of the number of tools they need to interact with every day to troubleshoot things. And that what that ultimately leads to is a more highly available system and a much more easily troubleshooted system. I think that the changes you're, you're talking about in the enterprise space are happening because enterprises are going from Java monolith to Java, you know, maybe less monolith to maybe microservices. And those new platforms bring with them all kinds of new tooling and, and, and service needs. Jonathan, this has, uh, as always, been an absolute pleasure. I uh, really appreciate the time and perspective. This has been a lot of fun. For those that want to reach out and get in touch, uh, what is the best way to you know, find you, reach you, and uh, share the next big idea? Yeah, man. Thanks so much for having me on this uh, inaugural episode that, that you're hosting. I've, I've had a blast. To uh, find out more about Vertex Ventures US, you can go to our website, vertexventures.com. You can also email me, Jonathan, directly. My email is ajh at vertexventures.com. Awesome. Thank you so much, and uh, look forward to talking again soon. Thanks for listening to this episode of Venture Confidential. Venture Confidential is brought to you by HeavyBit, the only fund and accelerator program dedicated to helping developer tools, infrastructure, and enterprise software startups achieve breakout success. If you're interested in learning more about HeavyBit, being a guest on this show, or have a VC-related question, you can email us at vc at heavybit.com.